Season three of True Craft Podcast is finally here. I spent the last two weeks off the grid, and I'm feeling like Tony the Tiger. Great. True story. The last week of our vacation, we shipped off our oldest son to sleepaway camp for the first time. Rami is 11, and like most 11-year-olds these days, is totally self-absorbed and addicted to his iPad. The confidence he exudes while playing Fortnite or flipping through TikToks is quite amazing. The ensuing conversations are even better. The days leading up to drop-off, I witnessed a behavioral change in Rami. He went from funny, confident 11-year-old to mildly anxious, very cautious, and timid. Now, I understand the first time at sleepaway camp can be scary as hell, and I tried my best to share my experience of when I went to camp and what it was like. I'm pretty sure I screwed it up royally. So we dropped him off and head out. There were a few letter exchanges over the week, and we wanted to make sure he understood we were coming back and were generally curious about his overall well-being. The communication back from Rami was somber. He was homesick. He missed his comfortable bed. And the camp was not serving Chilean sea bass. All understandable gripes from an 11-year-old in 2021. Pickup day arrived. While I was parking the car, my wife and younger two kids raced off to find Rami. It was a joyous reunion. We hugged. They cried. We met his counselors and cabin mates. Rami gave us a tour of the camp. It was really nice. On our walk, I drifted back in dad mode and said, did you learn anything new this week? He simply replied, yeah, dad. If we are able to cut out at least one sushi dinner a week, I think we can get the collective weight of our family under 400 pounds. He was definitely back. My reply to that was, WTF, son. We all laughed so hard. Yeah, so we did sleepaway camp. It was a success. On to season three and our co-host. Most of you have heard of this guy, or at least his brewery. Adam Robbings of Rubens Brews in Seattle, Washington. Adam co-founded the brewery, runs a podcast, sits on the finance committee of the BA, is a father, is a husband. The man is running hard. We are so lucky to have his time and attention to sit in as the resident co-host of season three. If you have a minute, I encourage you, please check out and subscribe to Adam's podcast, Rubens Cyclast. It's a goodie. Episode one of season three, we start off with Adam telling us how he was pulled into opening a brewery rather than pushed. Hmm. Pull versus push. I like the sound of that. Then we bring in the inaugural guest of season three, Steve Lieberman, founder of Surf Ridge Brewing out of El Segundo, California. Steve is a longtime restaurateur and shares his journey from East Coast to West Coast, and the impetus for opening up Surfridge. All right, let's do it. They, they might come for the beer, but then they, they stay for the food. Both of us were like, I'm going to own a brewery someday, starting at like 18 years old. There's no time in my life that I didn't think, oh, this would be a good time for a beer. Our retreat was killer, man. It was so much fun. Did you get a hotel or something to do that? 
So we went to a place called the Earthshine Lodge. It's in Lake Toxaway, North Carolina, and it's literally a lodge house with eight bedrooms and a commercial kitchen and a giant dining room in the middle. Wraparound patio, wraparound uh, deck, and the rooms have updated beds, updated bathrooms, but the internet spotty, self spot, uh, cell phone is spotty, and we were really forced to be with each other physically. Yeah. On hikes, we did a blacksmithing class. We did. Uh, we drank a ton of beer, man. <laughs> so when I was, they have a, they have a. So the day we got there. I was, I was talking to the lady ahead of time. I was like, this is what we do. We're planning on bringing beer. And she's like, well, we have our own license. I don't know. Let me talk to my staff. So she, she talks to the staff. She comes back to me. She's like, you can bring your own beer. I was like, okay, that's great. We had three coolers and probably 70 beers (laughs) (laughs) for nine of us from all over the country. And on day two, they put their sign out. It was like beers, $4, wine, $5. Oh my God. We, we sold it. up. Oh, we pushed it hard, man. <laughs> nice. But I got to be honest. There, there wasn't a single beer that I think was consumed by a person. Like Michelle brought a lot of sample cups, disposable sample cups, and we'd crack a, a sixteen ounce or a twelve ounce, and we just go around and let everyone try it. Let everyone try it. Well, that's great. Um, that's great. So, you like crikey? Oh, it was. I was. I think did you only send me one crikey? Because there was one Hazelicious, one crikey. Yeah, I I know that I think there was confusion about how much you wanted of stuff. And I think Yeah. Buddy, yeah. I was diving in the cooler the next day looking for a crikey. And I, I drank the Hazelicious. It was good as well. But that but crikey is delicious. Okay. Yeah. No, that that is our number one beer, right? As you know. Um let me uh, I'll get you some more. I'll get you some more. <laughs> wow. I did drink that all myself. I did not share that with anybody because I thought there was more because the Hazelicious and Crikey look similar. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, well, I'll get to try it. And Abby's like eyeballing me as I'm drinking. I was like, I think there's another one in the cooler. We can try it later or you can try it whenever. Crank it open. But I was like, I'm certain there was another one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's fun. I, I um, Was this your your end of year kind of thing or – this was meet everybody. Oh, okay. okay. This was unplug and meet everybody for the first, not everyone for the first time, but four out of the nine people I met, five out of the nine people I met for the first time. Grace and I should probably do something like that. Cause especially after we get an integrator, that means three of the leadership team. No, uh, one, two, three. Yeah. Three of the leadership team are new. Um, yeah, I don't know because we could. I'm in our cabin right now, and um, we could bring everybody here and like we we hire an RV or whatever, and then we could probably all fit in here, kind of thing. Or mm-hmm. so. And then there's a little golf course on down the street as well, so we could go and play golf yep. there. Yeah, it could, could be kind of fun. But um, Derek talked about your hot tub. Uh, yeah. Abby talked about your your. Uh, how how awesome it is to work with you guys and and yeah we we just your name came up a lot so well, that's that's good hopefully in a good way <laughs> oh that. yeah in, in an amazing way yeah <laughs> that bloody client of ours <laughs> no 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 <laughs> cool cool 
Yeah, man. So, um, okay, we're talking about history today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, let's just get started. Uh, Adam Robbins, thank you very much for being the Season 3 True Craft Podcast co-host. Third time lucky, maybe? <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> or unlucky, more like, probably. No, but thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to kick this season off. And the first two seasons, we we really have learned a lot. I was concerned when I first started about the journey because I really wanted to share the journey of the co-host. And I also wanted the co-host to help me extract the journey from all the guests. And we have just learned so much from season one and season two that it is, there's just nuggets of gold in everybody's story. Yeah. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, there's a underlying theme probably to most breweries opening, but there's lots of different paths to get on that journey. Definitely. Definitely. So you were actually a guest in season one, and we talked about operations, and we'll have another episode to dive in even deeper. And I think you gave us a little bit of a history on that episode. This first episode is all about the real history of Rubens and 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 why you chose beer. I, I want to know kind of in addition to the history, like what was going on in your brain other than you were a home brewer and you were wa- making award-winning beers. Like what was going on in your brain? What were you going to change in this industry when you decided to set out and, and start brewing? So, so, and I can't remember if we talked about it on, on that other interview, but um the way I describe it is that I got pulled into it rather than pushed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit more of a, a traditional way of entering the the, the industry is that um, you want a change of job, and so you start moving into the beer realm, right? Well, I um I had a I had a good job, and I didn't necessarily want to leave that job, um, but I really liked brewing, and Grace and I liked pouring our beer with people, and. Um, when we had, it got to a point where we were being asked for our beer and and um, by bars and stuff. And um, I was just a home brewer with a system in the garage, right? So it was, and we enjoyed pouring, and and um, so it, we we kind of like fell into it. But there's when you come. So I was in finance, right? A pretty, mm-hmm. a pretty the opposite of entrepreneur, if you if there's a definition of that. Um, so I needed a nudge, right? Like what is going to push me over the edge to make that leap right and we just got a new baby you know Ruben he was just he was only two at the time when we opened well that nudge was that um the company I worked for was being taken over and I would probably have been one of the first rounds of layoffs as uh, or synergies in air, air quotation marks right um and uh that was the nudge it's like oh that's great like we can live off of this uh, severance that we're going to get because we're going to get laid off and then we can give this a go. If it doesn't work, we can go back. Well, so that was the nudge. And, and like that was announced in October. We signed a lease in November. And then in December that year, the feds um, said that, no, that deal can't go through. They canceled that deal. So, mm. and then, so, oh, well, that's, that's we're not going to get this severance that was going to fund the, the start at the brewery. And then on top of that, I had these, um, retainer bonuses put in so i couldn't leave really either so it's like oh man so um so so for me what i'd say is that 
like everybody needs a push. And and even though my push was then like I was pulled back from that push for 18 months. So we from that date we I kept both jobs for 18 months. Um you need a kind of push to get you out of that comfort zone and to, to take the jump, unless you're like a born entrepreneur with this um like intrinsic risk factor. But I was never uh, you can ask my mum, she would say I was never one to take the uh, risky rides at the fairs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in in terms of um, what could we contribute for the industry, um, I would I would I would say we've always you have to have a humble a humbleness to that. Right? That I would say we have to earn the right to be relevant, and and, and I say that still to this day in in new markets that we go to, we can't assume anything we have to go in and just show people what we can do and 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 earn the right to be in somebody's um beer you know beer fridge at home you know so uh i think that that humility keeps you focused on what you're doing right and actually constantly improving uh beer quality is a journey it's not a destination and we've always got to be better every day did you enjoy your corporate finance position or were you just going through the motions? Cause I imagine you were young at the time you were, you were younger. Yeah. It's definitely younger. <laughs> yeah. I'm still probably an old bastard relative there. Um, <laughs> um, I think, I think having your brewery does age you a lot faster than uh, other things, but um, I had a lot of hair back then. Um, when uh, I wasn't going through the motions. No, I had, um, I had, been promoted a number of times at that company I've been with that same company for 13 years and had I think five or six different roles including promotions and um I was um trying to get bigger roles um one of the one of the things that's a little um that that I honestly miss from that is a um a uh, kind of in intellectual challenge right there's in massive massive companies there are a lot of very big problems that need significant uh, um solutions and um whereas running the brewery is a little is a lot more kind of obvious maybe you know that those very because it's a lot smaller it's it's theoretically easier or maybe more tactical to manage more methodical maybe Maybe, yeah, maybe I'm struggling with the words, but um, no. you can see the end-to-end process at the brewery, right? Whereas if you're working in a, I mean, I, in a very big company, you know, a lot of it is outsourced. So then you have to like look at how the transfers work between them, look at some SLA agreements in that com- in, the, in the company with the handoffs and stuff. So it's, um, it, it's definitely um, that, that level I played, I think we've, I swear that we've talked about this as well. I, I played chess as a kid. So mm-hmm. like that kind of logical challenge is kind of one thing that in a sort of strange or sick way, I kind of like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So uh, and now I've forgotten my trail of thought on that one, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I didn't, I wasn't doing just, just playing out time. I was on a career path. I, I think, you know, yeah. <laughs> So to recap everything you've said, you were in a in a corporate job. You were told you were you had a child. You were told you were being let go. You had a severance package lined up. You signed a lease for the brewery. 
space. And then you were told that your job is not over and you got to come back due to retention bonuses. That's all correct. But I, I wasn't told that my job was going to let go. That was an assumption, right? Because Oh, okay. It was too, too, we were going to be the acquired entity. Mm-hmm. You know, finance is normally one of those synergies in, in sure. acquisition. And, you know, I, my role in particular would have been one. I, I like managed the the uh, interactions with the parent company. Well, now we wouldn't have that parent company. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was an assumption and obviously an incorrect assumption. <laughs> with sure. <Heinz. laughs> um, I've, I've always known you to have a very high attention to detail. And it seems, given your past with chess and with this corporate finance position, that that statement is true. You have a super high attention to detail. How has that translated into running the brewery for you? And do you find that brewery owners typically have a high attention to detail or is it more a laissez-faire kind of passion project? Um. Yeah, so for for me, um, when when you start a brewery and there's only two of you working every day there, so it's me and my brother-in-law started, right? So essentially, um, I I I trained him how to how to brew, and then he took over the brewing, so then I could then go and do the sales and and everything else. Um, so at the start, you're doing everything, right? And then you hire people to take over discrete parts. Um, so um, I think that attention to detail is 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 important because um, when you start off, you need that attention to detail. The issue is, is as you grow, you need to give people in the team autonomy to look after their areas. So, mm-hmm. I, and so I've been um, trying to make sure that um, rather than the attention to detail piece can't be specific items they need to be like linked together maybe in a set of core values or principles that um people can take and then run with right yeah so um as we've grown i need to i've I've had to consciously focus because it's easier said than done to focus on the principles of how i look at things or rather than the actual specifics um but it's um it's kind of interesting because as you do grow, uh, as, as the founder, you, you're hiring for all of these roles in the team and you end up with things that don't sit in those roles and you end up with this like disparate pile of stuff that doesn't really make any sense, whether it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not like the best use of your time to some extent. You end, So I don't end up spending as much time as I'd like um, on the things that maybe I'm best at. So, and we've talked about this before, trying to create the organization to, to, to put in place to change that back, to enable you to focus on what you're good at. Right. Um, yeah. Easier said than cool. done. <laughs> it really is, man. I, I can tell you from the dec- the decade I've been doing this on my own, it, it is so much easier said than done. And, and there's so many wild cards when it comes to 
running a business where you rely on uh, other people to make the product or deliver the service and and we'll get to the culture episode and we'll get to the leadership episode. And I think there's a lot we can talk about there. Um, but for this episode, tell me who was the first employee other than you and your brother-in-law that you guys hired outside of family? Um, so, so the, 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 the next person that came on the payroll was somebody who was like volunteering a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. just, like a keg cleaning and starting to do some brewing and uh, like a home brewer who just wanted to like take it a little bit, a little bit further. So yeah, he was, he was the um, uh, first, uh, first person. And then uh, after that, and this was before I was on the payroll, cause I, you know, being the, the, the company, like really, I, I didn't pay myself for I don't know how long because we didn't have any money, right? Because you're, you're scraping when you start like crazy, um, right? So and then uh, and then the next person after that is uh, was uh, Conrad, I think, who's uh, our, in our sales team today, um, and he was a customer on the first day we were open, and him and his wife would help me at festivals um, pouring, and then. As we as we grew, he he came on on board to help um, initially bits and pieces in the tasting room, and then when we expanded, he he came on full time. Mm-hmm. Remind me what size brew house you opened up with? Yeah, so we started. So this this is interesting. We started. I, I bought a three barrel at first system, and I was going to triple brew into ten barrel fermenters, uh, up to ten barrel fermenters. But then um, when I got this three-barrel system, it needed a burner system added to it because it wasn't it wasn't kind of finished. Which when, every time I say that, that sounds even weirder than it was at the time. And uh, and then I looked at it and and then did some research. I thought, oh my god, this there's like really nobody in Seattle that can do this, and it looks like such a pain in the ass. So before I even took it out of the box, I had opened the box to like look at it, but I hadn't physically taken it out of the box. Right? Um, I sold that and upgraded it to a five barrel. And I'm so glad that we did. So we technically started with a five. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny hearing yeah. that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, but uh, let me just, uh, as an aside, like the first batch, so we got the five barrel system and we had gone through all this permitting process and we were running late. My wife had taken uh, Ruben to the UK to see my parents. It was right around the time of the 2012 Olympics. So she went to London to see like the Olympics and stuff. And I was working, I literally, like almost literally 24 seven. I would say probably 16 to 18 hours a day, not 24 hours a day. Um, uh, Getting the brewery started. And the idea was that when she was away, we'd fill all these tanks and then she'll come back and we can open. Right. But then we got a little delay and then we go to start our first batch and then the burner doesn't work. And then it turns out they need to ship us another burner. It will take two weeks. And it's like, oh, my God. God. So my homebrew system was 25-gallon homebrew system, so which is quite a de- decent size. And so I measured how far in the 10-barrel tank I needed to brew into, and it was 110 gallons-ish. So what's that, like three barrels, um, almost four barrels. Mm-hmm. And then we hit the thermo well so we could ferment. So my, my, my brother-in-law and I – 
uh, I think it was virtually 24 hour day. We brewed five batches on the 25 gallon homebrew system to wow. hit the cinema well to get our first batch in. <laughs> and uh, after that, we said, we're not doing that again. So we yeah, waited yeah. for to come. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Think back to that time when you were working in, in, were you excited at that moment to be doing all this or were you saying, what have I done? <laughs> what, what have I done? Um, it was incredible excitement, but um, you do go through these, it's, it's very emotional, right? So generally you're like on a high, but every now and then you went incredibly low. Like, oh yeah. You know, um, but no, it's totally on on a on a on a high. Um, I haven't I haven't had too many like what have we done kind of moments. Um, honestly, um, it's it's um, what you got to recognize is that everything's in your control, right? So, um, any anything that is an issue, it's only up to Grace and I to change it. You know, sure. Again, easier said than than done, but uh, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, it was just it was some stressful times around then, but um, it's it's kind of interesting looking back. Um, we looked so much younger; it's like a different life, uh, different different lifetime a lifetime ago, literally. And um, we opened without an IPA on tap because they weren't ready. So we we had set this date. We had all these delays, like right at the end, like the burner not working. And um, so we opened on August fifth, twenty twelve. So in the middle of summer with only one light beer, four dark beers and no IPAs. Like imagine doing that now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can get away with that now. <laughs> so I want to hear about the opening in a minute, but I want to share a quick story about something you reminded me with when you talked about the, the working and the excitement back in 2017, I decided to launch an online course. And I got so caught up in this online course world. It was, I think it's actually still pretty hot. It depends on where you are kind of in your entrepreneurship. But I found someone to kind of coach me along and someone really credible to coach me along. And same thing. I My, my family also was overseas in the Middle East. And I would work eight or nine hours at the office. I'd go home. I ate the same thing every day. I ate uh, hummus pretzel chips, pita, like pretzel chips and uh, deli meat rolls every single day. And I'd work till 11 or 12, just cranking out content and recording and re-recording. And looking back on it, I did that for eight weeks straight. Wow. I did that where, you know, five days a week. I, I don't, I, I may have worked a little bit on Saturdays, but they were out of town for eight weeks and I, I loved every minute of it. It was so invigorating to go create the content and just do the whole the whole thing. So I can relate to that that grind. And it was um and I had some oh shit moments for sure. I had some moments like, well, you know, the numbers start going through your head and and you get in this online course world and they say, you know, our our launch reached a million viewers and we converted one percent. And I'm just kind of like a million viewers. How many people are in the brewing industry? This is back in like 2017, 2016. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm at a tenth of that. Wait a minute. What am I doing all this work for? Wait a minute. Wait, and I, all these, but I, st- I kept cranking through 
anyway, the course is is long gone. It doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, I I can totally relate to the the mole holes you just you just go down when you're when you're building something that you're so passionate about. Um, okay, back to opening night. Okay, walk us through. Oh, go oh. ahead. Sorry, Chris. A couple of things on that. It's kind of interesting because I do the same thing. I just eat the same thing every time, right? And it um, it takes that. It doesn't take any mind share then to to think about right. what you're right. You can just focus on working, right? And that just remind like Steve Jobs always wore the same stuff, so we never had to think about what he was going to wear, right? That is kind of reminds me a, a little, little bit of that. And and the other thing about not having any of those oh, oh, oh shit moments, it was we did this at a very uh, constrained size. So we started relatively small, and it, I, I liken it to we were putting our toes in the water to see what the temperature was, kind of. like. And the idea of it was if it didn't work out, I keep my day job. Ruben can use the space to ride his bike around like he did yeah. before he started building it, and um, all is good, right? But with hindsight, what, the way I describe it is more like us we were dipping our toes in the water, but we we're actually falling in at the same time. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't realize, I, at the time it made us comfortable that we can, about it, and we weren't stressed in terms of overextending ourselves. Um, but with hindsight, like you were kind of falling in that pool. Like there's, there's, no, <laughs> there's right. only one we're going here. But um, yeah, so I think that definitely took the pressure off. Like if we had been raising funds from other people, significantly leveraging up ourselves and having responsibilities not just to our ourselves but also to others um and we did have responsibility to others to my brother my, my my brother-in-law and his family um that was enough stress but then if we had a lot of other people counting on us like in my ear saying when are you going to give us a return when are you going to give us a return that would have been a totally different thing and, and and we wouldn't be in the same place today i don't think we wouldn't um yeah so yeah, I in my experience, not a lot of breweries opened up the way you did. Uh, um, I'd say a majority opened exactly the way you just described, and I would say most of those investors now are at peace with their investment as like a, a community donation. I mean, they still have a part of some some asset, but the returns have not have, have not been what they expected. You know, and 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 I think that's um, in in some cases. In other cases, it's 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 far exceeded it. So, yeah, I um, that's amazing the way you did. Um, but but that the problem with that is that we have built three breweries since in, in nine years, right? Because uh, none of them were ever big enough. So there's costs to it. But uh, I think at the time it gave us a, a, a peace of mind that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Right. So on that note, describe to us the three, the, so you went from a five barrel. Where did you go after that? Yeah. So, um, we opened in August, 2012. And then, uh, in by April, 2012, we had put, already put in our expansion tank that we, we had had a, a place where if we, if things got busy and we were at capacity, we just couldn't brew enough. And it was like, okay, well, I guess we need to find somewhere else. And that's when I left my, my day job to try and find another location. 
the 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 um, market back then, the real estate market was really really tight, and uh, it actually uh, took best part of two years to sign a lease on another space. We had four deals fall through on us. Some crazy stories there. I mean, meeting with a landlord, shaking with shaking hands with them for a deal on this space, them giving us plans for the space so we could give them to the, our architect, and then them signing a lease with somebody else. Stuff like this is like, wow, this is crazy. Um, but we had a number of things that fall through. But yeah, so then we, when we found another space, um, that we actually opened that in May uh, 2015. And uh, we kept our original brew house as well, our, our original brew house. So that, that, that lost its tasting room. So we closed that to the public, moved the tasting room to the new bigger space and put a, a 15 barrel system in there. Um, but the key, the key ability to have that bigger system was actually keeping the small system so we could keep the variety of beers going because I didn't want to just only have six beers on tap now because we can do these far bigger batches. Um, the variety and breadth is a big part of what we're about. So, um, yeah, so we opened that space and, you know, I had done some research obviously beforehand about sizing it and, I could see that most breweries in Washington state didn't get over 3000 barrels. They looked like there was this kind of ceiling around 3000 barrels that seems to be really hard to push through. So we signed with a distributor as we went into that far bigger space because we were moving from a capacity of, uh, of 800 barrels a year to 5,000-ish, something like that initially. And I thought, well, you know, we probably 3,000 barrels is in five years' time reasonable for us to be at because that in the industry seemed really kind of big. But within five weeks, we're brewing at a, and selling at a five, uh, 3,000 barrel run rate. Wow. And it's like, wow, this is all a bit messed up. So then I got order, ordered a few more tanks after five weeks of opening the new brewery. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then it kind of continue from there we had another warehouse space and stuff was your were you putting only draft product out at that time or did you have cans we were bottles back then oh so we, wow okay we had a mobile bottler that come in came in um and and that worked out quite well when we got to 2016 um i think maybe marchish of 2016 was our first ever can release and we bought a small canning line um at that time and that was another example we got the what wild goose set up but that can you can increase the capacity of that so we got a two head to start with but after that first run i called them up and said okay we need to expand it to the forehead because it was it was like that was um that was pretty it's pretty slow like if we just double the speed it would be great so and then in the end, we got that to a five head before we just literally upgraded that system from a five head um, to a 20 head rotary uh, last month. Nice. Very good. Um, so you mentioned three brewing locations. What's the third one? Yeah. So we have the five barrel system that we opened in 2012. Then mm -hmm. we... Our main, we still have our main tap room. That's a, a 15 barrel system that we opened in 2015. And then at, 
the start of 2019, end of, end of 2018, I think, um, we opened a, our what we call production brewery. So that has that has a 30 barrel. It's a, all of these systems are oversized, and that's an, probably another topic. But um, that can do up to 44 barrel batches, and that's in uh, uh, where our canning line is. And, and that, all of these spaces are within maybe eight blocks. Um, we're in a part of Seattle that's industrial and residential kind of mixed, mm-hmm. and. Um, the way that real estate kind of works there is there isn't any real big buildings, but there's more of a few smaller ones. So, so you end up having this like patchwork quilt of spaces that come together to, to be what you need. Um, and we, uh, we have, uh, I think six different buildings now, um, mm, like wow. ranging from, I think it's about a thousand square foot footprint, the original to our production brewery, which is, uh, 11,000, I think. So, uh, you know, different sizes and, and, and stuff. But um, yeah, it's kind of, um, we have three brew houses. We have a warehouse, our sour warehouse, which we're aging at our sour beers. Um, and then we have a couple of storage spaces. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's a big operation. Um, I alluded to this earlier and I still want to hear about it. Uh, Talk, walk us through the first night. The first night you were open to the public. Oh, that's a, a good question. Um, um, so, do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> well, so we, I can't remember when we, when we closed on, the, on that day, but like the tasting room opened like 11 or 12, and it was a sunny August 5th. Uh, day on August 5th, um, really nice and sunny, um, blue skies. And uh, in in Seattle, we have this thing called Sea Fair, uh, you know, which is a celebration of, of water and, and, and the sea and stuff. And the um, Blue Angels uh, do a a um, do a show mm-hmm. on the Saturday and Sunday, a Sea Fair. And so I always say that they're actually celebrating us opening on the Sunday because they came oh, nice. behind us. Like, and it's pretty loud. It's pretty loud. Oh, it's but, very um, loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had uh, the seafair there, and um, when we opened, um, we had maybe ten people in a line. But it all seemed pretty soft because we opened on seafair weekend. Um, so there's a lot of other stuff to do. We opened on a Sunday, which is an odd day to open. But we opened in a way that we were trying to like not not make it too crazy so we couldn't couldn't like survive and we opened it was literally grace myself my brother-in-law and sister-in-law working that that day like that was mm-hmm. all of us all hands on deck <laughs> sure and, and um no it's, it was it was a, a a fun a fun day to actually get to the point of of opening um but yeah it seems i mean that seems so long ago that seems so long ago Right. So nothing crazy, like you didn't run out of beer the first day. You didn't have people spilling it. No, it was just no. a normal, normal day in the tap room. No. Um, uh, the very first customer we had, uh, we forgot to do the whole dollar bill thing. Um, so that was disappointing, right? Now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. You won't be able to do that now anymore because most places are, ca- are card only, right? <laughs> right. Um, 
But the first person who came in, we we connected with him because he was a friend of our landlord. We connected with him to be the first person at the 2015 space, uh, that tap room. Oh, so nice. He's, he, he did the first cask for, for that that space. So that was kind of nice. But no, we, we didn't have uh, a ton of people. Now, uh, this is kind of one of my learnings from opening, um, which is around word of mouth marketing um, mm-hmm. and that it's an exponential growth curve. So so for us, we uh, had quite a lot of write-ups. We won a number of awards very early on. Um, but still, it was relatively slow all the time and um, for the first few months. And it was like, wow, this is kind of like, well, I'm glad I kept the day job kind of thing. But uh, what what happened then was um, we, so that's why we started bottling, because we had this capacity. But what happened is that we hit that like kind of critical mass. And all of a sudden, we went from being very slow. Like I'm talking about like one person there when the Seahawks are on on, on Sunday. Like, well, this isn't <laughs> this isn't much fun. Like, um, and then uh, and then all of a sudden we went to being totally like full. Like, and what I think it is, it's just the one person tells one person, and they both tell one person. You know, this exponential sure. sort of mouth thing that we hit critical mass around March of that following year, and then we were busy, and that's when that's kind of I remember sitting in the tasting room in like March or April that year, that after we opened and I was sitting there talking to a friend and somebody sitting on, on the table next to us went to go and get another beer. But the line went about 10 yards outside of the door to get into the line to get a beer. So they got up, went outside, saw that how far the line was and came back in and said, look, the line is miles outside. So let's go somewhere else. It's like, Yes, we need to find another space. So that, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of a realization. That's funny. Um, you and I were talking about your IPA Crikey before. Is that one of the OG beers? No, no. No, is it a newer beer? So so we brewed a lot of um Imperial IPAs at the start, but we didn't brew a, a, a like a standard IPA mm-hmm. uh, just because we couldn't brew enough. And I, I knew as soon as we through an IPA, it's going to have to be on tap all the time, and uh, we're going to struggle to keep it in in inventory. So it wasn't until 2014 that we brewed uh, Crikey. So it's a couple, oh, wow. couple of years in, yeah. So we actually opened with a a Roggen beer. A Roggen beer was our first beer that we ever brewed on the homebrew system. Um, then we did had an American rye, which is a light rye beer, uh, a porter, an American brown, and a dry stout. So as you can see, perfect beers for a sunny 90 degree August 5th yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you got it done, man. I know it, it um, it's never easy starting a business or opening a brewery, but you got it done. You've uh, had a great run going at it. So yeah, awesome. All right. Well, I want to get to the interview now. Uh, we have a great interview with uh, a guest today, uh, Steve Lieberman from Surfridge Brewing out of El Segundo, California. So uh, let's do that, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks. All 
All right, well, let's get started, gentlemen. Uh, I want to welcome Steve Lieberman from Surf Ridge Brewing Company in El Segundo, California, as the first guest on season three of the True Craft Podcast. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Great to great to be chatting with you today. Yeah, yeah, very good. So today's episode is all about the history of your brewery. And I know that you have a f- couple of fun projects in the works that I'm excited to share with all the listeners. So before we get into the other projects, tell us about your background and tell us the history of how Surfridge got started. Oh, oh my background. So I've been in um, restaurant industry, beer industry for a long time. Since I was about 16, you know, you know, the old story, 16 started bar backing during, you know, high school and then 18 started bartending during summers. And I grew up in uh, Long Island, New York. So out in the on the island, I was uh, I was out in the Hamptons and bartending all through kind of uh, the summers. And then I went to college in upstate New York and bartended through college. And then after college in 2000, I graduated in college in 2000, I um, moved down to New Orleans, actually. And uh, that's kind of where my craft beer world started. Um, I was used to drinking a lot of Bud Light in Long Island. We're we're heavy, heavy Bud Light people out there. Uh, um, And so... Went down to New Orleans, got a job working at Brennan's Restaurant as the uh, assistant wine cellar master and the bar manager. So basically surrounded by uh, wine and spirits and beer. And I did that for two years. And um, let's think, I, I kind of, the first thing that that got me was the beer. And, and I, I didn't understand, you know, I started drinking Abita and Nola and all these good breweries down there. And didn't understand why, you know, we had Corona and Heineken and Amstel Light on tap when those things you could have in a bottle and we could have a beta on Turbo Dog on tap and some Nola, Nola beers on tap. And, and, and guests that drank the Heinekens and the Amstel Lights, they'll drink it out of the bottle. They don't need it on tap. So I, that was kind of one of my first things that I did was change the beer list over and, and kind of move some more of those touristy things into the bottle and, and kept you know, kept the drafts for some more local stuff. Uh, did that for two years and then moved out to San Francisco, the weather and the lifestyle in New Orleans. I got a question. Tough. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Before we move on. So New Orleans, early 2000s, craft beer was still, has not gone through its renaissance in the second ten, second decade of the 2000s. What did, did ownership give you full access to change the beer list? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I obviously had to um, prove myself and, 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 you know, it was definitely, definitely a battle between numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, you go to the owners and they're like, well, look at how much draft we sell of Corona and Hamstel Light and Heineken. Like this stuff is killing it. And I'm like, yes, but your, your volume won't go down if we move it to the bottle. And, and I think that people that come to New Orleans want some local stuff. You know, they want, they want beignets and they want, they want crawfish and they want etouffee. They're not coming here to get, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers and, and drink sure. Heineken. You know, we might as well, you know, give them 
turtle soup and bananas foster and, and those things, if we're doing it culinary wise, we might as well try and create the whole package, you know, give some good local, local cocktails, local beers, local wines, uh, or, you know, as close as you can get. So, you know, there's always a battle with that, with, uh, what you, what you think should be done and, and what management and ownership want. But, uh, yeah, so I kind of just chipped away at it. I guess I was, I was, you know, after the, after a few months, they said, all right, what's our worst selling draft? Oh, it's Corona. Great. Move it to the bottle and you can put on a beetle, a beta purple haze, you know, and purple haze crushed it and, and just, you know, sold through the roof. And, uh, and then I was able to get another handle and just kind of chip away at it like that. And, you know, I was still, I was still a young guy and, you know, right out of college. And I, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a, a battle that I needed to happen right then and there. So yeah, it was, it was great. Just kind of working with the ownership. And I worked a lot with the wine cellar master. He had a huge wine cellar list and he was kind of like 50,000 bottles up to his head in wine and was like, yeah, you want to do some cool stuff with the beer, like go do some cool stuff with the beer. We're making Ramos gin fizzes and, and bloody Mary's and selling bottles of wine. You know, this is a high end restaurant, like how much beer are we really selling? So they kind of gave me a little bit more leeway with the beer than, than if I went into a craft beer bar, like the bulldog or someone else like that in new Orleans, they would be like, yeah, hey, slow down champ. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. It was, it was, it was a really good learning experience. And new Orleans is a, it's a tough live. It's great and it's fun, but you don't see the sun much. You're not eating salads very often, and it's uh, it's a tough it's a tough life down there. So two years was about it. I I hit my window and I was like, all right, it's either I'm either going really into the into the void of darkness, or I'm I'm going to crawl my way out and go somewhere with some sun. And um, so love New Orleans, still go back all the time. Still one of my favorite places in the world. But I, it was time for me to kind of move on. And, um, that's when I came out West, my brother was living in San Francisco and he was like, Hey, I got an extra room. Do you want to come, come rent the other room and moved in with my brother up in San Francisco and got a job out there at, um, McCormick and Coletto's, which is a big seafood restaurant, right in Ghirardelli square, overlooking Alcatraz. there, all windows looking at Alcatraz and, um, kind of did the same thing. I came in and I was, you know, every time I walked into one of these places I saw on draft, it was always Heineken, Amstel Light, Coors Light, Bud Light, Corona, if you're lucky, Pacifico, if you're really lucky, you know, it was all these things. And I'm like, we're in San Francisco, where's the Anchor Steam? You know, where, where's the, where's the um, Sierra Nevada? Like, where's the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale? Where's the Anchor Steam? And this was, you know, I wasn't even talking about super small batch nano breweries at the time. I was still talking about larger breweries, but at least get some local good microbreweries in there, like a Sierra and like an Anchor Steam, put that stuff on draft, move the Coronas and the Heinekens down to bottle. Um, and uh, kind of, I worked there for two years and kind of did the same thing, kind of slowly chipped away at the at the uh, general manager's uh, numbers that he was showing me every week about how much how much Amstel Light's selling and just kind of chipped away and, and put Sierra Nevada on um, pale ale on tap. We put anchor steam on tap and they really just started doing quite well. And, uh, and, and it was getting more, you know, the, the brew scene was getting more and more prevalent at the time. This was, let's think I was 2000 to 2002 in New Orleans. So this was 2002 to 2004 in San Fran. So just kind of, uh, 
kind of doing that and working in the beer world there. And then um, LA, made my way to LA. Uh, 2004, moved to LA and for five years, worked at three different restaurants in LA, uh, one in the South Bay, one in Santa Monica and one in Culver City. And uh, I was everything from bar manager to assistant general manager to general manager and same kind of things. I was, I was trying to just evaluate the top list. I always found myself kind of geared towards the beer lists and, and, and I knew that there was movement that we could make in those, you know, the, the wine lists and the cocktail lists, you can always play with those and move those things around, but <clears throat> you're, your bottom line won't change that much. Prices on those things change a little bit and, and can help. But if you're going from selling a, a $5 pint of Amstel Light to a $9 snifter of Delirium Tremens, it, it really can, can help change some of your numbers and the perception of your, of your establishment. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what I did at all the places came in and did that. And the last place I worked at was in Santa Monica. And that's where I met my, was going, my girlfriend that is now my wife. And um, we were kind of talking, she was working in a hotel and I was working in the restaurant and we had talked about, you know, my dream was always to kind of open my own place. And, and she was like, well, I think, I think we can do it. Let's do it. And we were dating at the time and we found a space in Santa Monica and that's where our restaurant is that we've had since 2009. So we still have it. It's uh, called West fourth and Jane and it's been a big West side craft beer haven since 2009. The first, first two years, we didn't even have enough money. I mean, we really bootstrapped it and we did not even have enough money to put in a draft system. So we had two double door coolers behind the bar and we had a hundred bottles. Wow. I mean, we had, everything I could get my hands on. And I was, I was trying to, I, you know, Pliny in a bottle, like everything I could get my hands on. It, it was, it was from 2009 and we, it's, it's still going now. So, but we eventually put in taps and now we're doing about, we do 25 drafts and 50 bottles and they're all rotating and I'm bringing in stuff from the East coast cans from the East coast of, <clears throat> you know, stuff that people haven't tried, you know, your, your fat orange cats and uh, your Finback and, and, and other half and stuff like that. And then uh, we're doing a lot of rot all our drafts rotate. So we have Pliny and blind pig on draft, a lot of modern time stuff on draft and just as, as much stuff as I can get my hands on, we're always rotating. So we've had that, we've had that going now for almost 12 years. So it seems to me like you took your de your decade of change in the beer industry and applied it to your own spot because back in I think back in even in 20, 2009 it was still difficult to find craft centric bars or gastro pubs. Yeah, you know what, one of the big things is like um, as a as a manager in the industry it's a pain in the ass. It's you know I was, I was dealing with 15 different distributors. I mean, I had some distributors that only had one or two beers that I wanted and the guy was hand delivering it in the back of his soccer mom van. You know, it wasn't, you know, and, and I get it as somebody that was a manager and an owner, I understand like if you're just a manager of a restaurant and you have no ownership, you know, you're like, I'll pick the three biggest distributors. I'll get all my beers from them. I'll get three deliveries a week. I don't even have to deal with it. But for us back in 2009, for me, I mean, I was, I, I was finding small wine companies that had, 
you know, small German breweries that were coming in, um, you know, Schoenrammer and stuff like that, that you can't find anywhere. And they were, they were a wine company and they're like, Oh yeah, we have two or three beers. So I was like, I'll take all three beers. And they're like, you don't want any of our wine. And I'm like, no, I take these three beers that, you know, they're, they're super rare Dunkel vices and, 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 and strange, strange uh, Berliner vices. And I'll bring in these, these 19 ounce glass bottles from Germany and, and put them on my list. And it was, I mean, it was a lot of work to, to deal with all these different distributors and trying to get the most eclectic list I could. And I get why people are like, no, not dealing with it. I just want, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just dealing with three distributors and that's it or mm-hmm. two maybe, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, um, it was in 2009 moving forward, you know, the bottles was really fun. And then we moved into the draft list. We finally made enough money and I put in a nice draft system and, and we've always, you know, been a gastro pub, you know, chef driven burgers and salads and, and ribs and, you know, comfort food and got a little bit of New Orleans vibe and a little bit of a New York vibe to it. Cause, cause those are the two places that kind of still hold true to my heart. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, the craft beer world was growing and growing. And I mean, I, I, I was one of the places in the West side of Los Angeles that carried some breweries first time they were in LA. Like when Brooklyn brewery came to LA, we were the first place to have Brooklyn lager on top because I knew them from the East coast. When, when modern times was, was expanding from San Diego, we were one of the first people to have them on draft. Um, I was getting, I wasn't even allowed to get draft of, of Russian river. They were just giving me, I was getting a case of Pliny a week and it was going in three days. Like, and then once the draft, my draft system happened, I had a permanent handle. So there were, there were things where I had to grow with the industry and kind of me and my wife had to really work on, on, on making it what we wanted. Like we, we didn't have hard liquor and we didn't want to sell, you know, bar food. So craft beer was the, was the the obvious step into into making it more of a destination place for us? I was going to say, LA is such a huge county. Are you known? Is your spot known as a destination for craft beer? Yeah, there's there's. I'd say in the whole of LA County, there's about ten spots now. Back in two thousand nine, we were one of five. You know mm-hmm. where where you had. Um, where you had Tony's darts away and us and uh, surly goat. And there were a couple of, you know, there was only four or five places, six places, library, uh, library, house, father's office. You know, there was about five of us that were really craft centric. And now of course there's way more than that, but um, on the West side of Santa Monica, still we're kind of, you know, on in Santa Monica or on the West side of LA, we are kind of definitely known as, as one of the premier craft beer bars and uh, we take a lot of pride in the lists that we procure for our guests you know yep all right so fast forward us to surf ridge and and how that got open so yeah the brewery uh was actually my wife's idea she you know we were just trucking along it was we opened in 2009 we were dating and then engaged in 2010, married in 2011, and had our son in 2012. So kind of busy for those, those first five years of the, of the restaurant. Um, and then around 2015, my wife was like, you know, like, we both love beer. We, why, don't we, why don't we talk about doing a brewery? And we started kind of the conversations. And we had a friend who was a chef who was also a home brewer. 
and uh, my wife was kind of working on him a little bit. Like, we know your passion's brewing. Like, let's open a brewery together. You're, we're friends with you and your wife. We all get along. Like, let's the four of us do it. So we kind of started the seed idea there and writing the business plan. And, you know, I went out and raised, started raising some money and um, they kind of decided that they wanted to go in a different direction. So me and my wife continued to raise money and, and say, Hey, we're going to do this. And we, we always, you know, there's <laughs> restaurants have ceilings and, and there's, it, it's kind of, it's kind of nice to be able to put a product out into market um restaurants have ceilings you know how many seats you have how many hours you're open your square footage you physically unless you expand into a different space you physically can only make as much as you can make if you're packed full capacity every day for lunch and dinner you know you expand to breakfast you know that's it with breweries you know you can get lagunitas in japan you can get sam adams all over the world so we were like you know that this might be a good step in our company's future and in the next direction. And we still love restaurants and we still love creating concepts and food, but um, we can still do that with brew pubs and have our own product and, and do that with production brewing. So we kind of just kept at it. We kept at it and kept at it and finally raised, you know, we did tastings and raised the money and uh, found a space in El Segundo and then hired a, a, a brewer that, that we really like a lot. And um, we were going to open, we opened late September, early October, basically October 1st of 2019. Um, we were supposed to open earlier than that, but you know how these things go, right? It's, it's nine months later and twice as much money as you think. And that was kind of <laughs> our experience with, you know, we were having some, some deals with the electricity, electrical company slowing us down, Edison, which, you know, they, they, they got a monopoly on that, right? So they were, uh, there were definitely some slowdowns, but we uh, we opened right before, you know, five, six months before COVID hit and we were jamming and putting out, we had about 10 to 15 different beers on draft and we were selling our kegs to local, local South Bay and El Segundo restaurants. And then COVID hit and we were like, oh, I guess no one's coming in the tasting room anymore. And we're not selling to bars and restaurants because they're not open. So did a quick change of gears and started mobile canning. And uh, we have <clears throat> about 12 beers on, in the market through canning. And now restaurants and bars in our tasting room are jamming again. So now we're kind of double the capacity selling a lot of the kegs to local bars and restaurants. And our tasting room is really nice. My, my wife's also a designer. So she designed the tasting room to look and feel a lot more homey and comfortable than most breweries you go to. Um, and that's not, not anyone's fault. We're lucky that we have a team that has different strengths. You know, a lot of times it's a couple home brewers or a couple guys that are bootstrapping it. And they're like, yeah, just put a couple barrels out and, and let's do this brewery. And, and we're just worried about the beer and we're worried, worried about brewing. And we came from a restaurant background. So we were able to think, all right, the tasting room is going to bring in a lot of revenue and make people want to come here and hang out. How do you stand out? with so many breweries now, hundred over a hundred breweries in LA County, how do you stand out? And the tasting room was a big avenue for us for that. And my wife designed it really beautifully and people want to do events there and parties there and, and the beers are really good. And now with our branding and our can line, we're really happy with how that looks and, and that's out in liquor stores and supermarkets and stuff. So yeah, it's going, 
it's going good now that uh now that COVID's loosened up a little bit. It's uh things feel like they're starting to come back. Yep. yep. So what's your responsibility at the brewery? What was your responsibility at open is the real question. When you guys first opened the surfridge, what were you doing on day one? The general manager, I would call it, you know, every, everything, a hundred different hats, but everything from, <clears throat> from assistant brewer to, you know, tap room manager to, um, cleaning company to, um, you know, to sellermen, to distribution. I was, I was going out and selling and, and delivering delivery guy, you know, doing all that stuff. My wife is, is, is much better than me at, uh, organization and, and, um, keeping the lights on, I guess you call it. She's, uh, she's kind of our CFO, our financial officer. And, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more of general manager and, and, you know, hiring staff, training staff, you know, ordering, you know, finding hops, ordering hops, <clears throat> getting us a forklift when ours breaks down, you know, all the things that you got to do to kind of make it work. And and she's making sure that I'm not spending all the money and that we're, we're doing our excise tax and we're, uh, we're filing our taxes and we're, uh, yeah. she's also the designer and, you know, HR department. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, it's a good balance between the two. And, and now we, we, we brought some of our people along that have worked with us for years over at the restaurant that kind of wanted to take the next leap into, into more of the corporate structure of the company. And we have, we have a, a couple of girls and a couple of guys that have come along with us and, and now are, you know, one's the assistant brewer, one's the sales manager, one's our social media director and event coordinator, you know, so we, we've brought these people along and, and they're, they're part of the corporate corporate animal now i guess you call it even though i don't like to we're not definitely not a corporate company we're still mom and pop husband and wife team you know um but they have more of those kind of managerial salaried corporate roles where they can help us oversee all the uh all the things that need to be done at at both places to be honest with you cool hey steve so so given that you knew so much about beer from around the, the world, right, when, when you're in the planning stages, how did you envision um, Surfridge fitting into the, the world of beer, if you like? Like what, what, made, what, what position did you take to make you different? I, I'm so, you know, I drink, I drink IPAs, but now, but my whole life, I, I loved beer because of the, wide variety and selection of beer you know a pinot noir is a pinot noir when it comes down to it it's the same grape. the regions of course the soil the terroir the temperatures that all will affect the flavor of it but a pinot noir from southern california or northern california and a pinot noir from france or italy is going to still taste somewhat similar they're going to have somewhat of the same characteristics light you know, light body, easy drinking, red wine, a little bit of jam, a little bit of fruit, but you drink a German Hefeweizen and you drink an American Vermont double hazy IPA and they are, or, or not even a German Hefeweizen, a German lager or a, a Berliner Weiss 
and then an American double IPA or, or a Russian Imperial Stout. I mean, the, the variety is just, there's so much that you can do. There's so many things that you can do with beer that it's endless. That It's not, it's not controlled by anything. It's only controlled by your imagination. It sounds corny, but it, it is. I mean, people are putting, I, I just had a agave lime and sea salt lager the other day, you know, and, and you're not putting agave lime and sea salt in a Chardonnay or, 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 or even, even, a, even a, a bourbon, you know, you're not putting that into a bourbon. So the, the wide variety is what I really loved. I, I, I love that beer fit with anything. There, there's, there's no time in my life that I, that I didn't think, oh, this would be a good time for a beer. You know, whether you're, you're on a ski slope, you know, and it's freezing cold and you're by a fire and you want a nice, you know, a nice <clears throat> bourbon ale or, or, you know, a barrel aged ale, or you're on a boat in the Hamptons at hundred degree weather during the summer and you want a uh, ghost, you know, or it's, it, there, there's, there's no real, oh, this is a wine event, or this is a, this is a, this is a, this is time for a cocktail. Like, yeah, I love cocktails. And I love wine, but beer fits the mold for everything in my mind. So when we were doing the brewery, the, the things that we talked to with the brewer was like clean and balanced. We want everything clean and balanced. Like if you're making, you're making a Pilsner clean and balanced, it can have some cool stuff in it. You can put strawberry in if you want, but be clean and balanced. If you're doing a, a double IPA, be clean and balanced. But I want something for everyone. I mean, that's kind of, we weren't a sour house. I wasn't a barrel aging house. I wasn't an IPA house. I didn't want to be a lager house. I just wanted to, you come in and you like lagers, great. I, I can push you towards our Kolsch or our Belgian white ale. If you're, if you're, if you like dark beers, we've got, you know, Russian Imperial Stouts and chocolate vanilla porters so you know if you like ipas we got five or six seven different ipas between double ipa single ipa hoppy pale ale you know so that was kind of the thing that i wanted is that depending on the weather the time of day the time of year your tastes change for beer and, and you you want different things i want different things in the summer that i want in the fall and the spring and especially being out here on the east coast there's more seasons in la you only have the summer and the spring but um that was kind of it. It was, it was do, do, do good beers, do a nice wide variety of good beers that are clean and balanced that aren't, you're not trying to be gimmicky or, or do something, <clears throat> you know, recreate the wheel. You just want to do it well, you know, chefs, everyone's got a burger, right? They're all burgers. Mm -hmm. every, almost every restaurant has a burger. They're all burgers. Each chef puts his own spin on it. One guy uses, you know, a remoulade. One guy uses, you know, sriracha ginger sauce. You know, they all have their own spin on it, but it's still a burger. So it's still beer and we'll put our spin on it. And we have some fun beers that we put our spin on it, but a good beer is a good beer, whether it's a lager or a bourbon barrel aged barley wine, you know? I got a, I got another question for you. Does the brewery have a permanent food program or how do you handle that? We um, use outside food vendors in okay. the one the one in Los Angeles. So we'll we'll do food trucks. We've got a couple of restaurants that come and set up you know set up tents and stuff like that. Um, and uh, we do 
you know, it's, it's, it's the, the food trucks can be challenging. You know, they, they, they show up late or they don't show up at all, or they leave early or they're, we're not busy enough for them. So they get annoyed and, you know, are, are a pain in the pain in the ass to my staff. So right. uh, the, you know, the, the restaurants and the, and the private, the private kind of catering companies are great because they're there. They know they're going to be there. They, they got to set up a whole thing. So it's not like, Oh, I'm turning the, I'm turning the food truck on and I'm out of here. Like it takes a while right. for them. It takes a while for them to break that stuff down, you know? So we really like using that. And, um, you know, we do, you know, tacos and burgers and all sorts of different, you know, Southern fare and whatever we can get our hands on, um, to do, uh, to do food for the guests is, is important to us that, you know, there's a lot of breweries you go to and you have a beer or two, and then you want to go somewhere and eat and it kind of doesn't keep people there. So our big thing is the environment, you know, how do you create a comfortable environment where people want to hang out and spend their hard earned money and spend their time? I mean, time and money is valuable to all of us. And how do you, how do you create that atmosphere where they're like, you know what, instead of coming here for a beer and then going somewhere for dinner and then going somewhere else for an after dinner drink, we'll just stay at Surf Ridge all day. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your expansion in one minute, but I have a question about distribution. Do you feel that your relationship and your longstanding experience in the restaurant industry has helped you in distribution? Um, yes and no. I feel a little bit like the yes part is I have a lot of contacts, know a lot of people, know a lot of the sales reps, you know, a lot of the guys that own some of the smaller craft distribution companies in LA. I'm, I'm on a you know, a texting basis with. So that's nuts. You know, I, I have all that. And it does create a little bit of credibility. When I walk through a door and I say, I'm Steve from Surfridge Brewing Company. And they're like, don't you also own Westworth and Jane? And like, it creates a little bit of credibility because they, I'm not just some random guy off the street. I've had this, me and my wife have had this restaurant since 2009. So yeah, it helps, it helps with that. Just, just being in the, <clears throat> being in the kind of the, the circle, you know? Right. Um, business is business, right? So everyone always thinks, oh, it's a beer industry. Everyone's so chill. Everyone's so cool. Every industry has their good people and their bad people. I mean, I don't care if you're a professional athlete, if you're in insurance, if you're a lawyer, there's good people, you know, there's, there's people that are about the money and there's people about, about, you know, the world and everything else. And that's just the way it is. So there was definitely a little bit of, pushback like what are you doing in our side of of the industry you know you're you're that side we sell to you why are you selling to to our accounts now kind of a little bit of a feeling of that not in a not in a, an aggressive way but you could totally feel the tension of some people being like oh you're opening a brewery i thought you were just a restaurant guy mm-hmm. you know and that kind of you, you learn quickly who's who, who the cool people are that are out there that are trying to help you every which way. And, and, you know, you know, Hey, I'll drive a, I'll drive a 44 pound bag of hops down to you because you're brewing tomorrow. And, and, you know, we got people that do that for us. And we do that for people where, Hey, I ran out of some hops, I'm brewing tomorrow and they'll drive it down for you an hour and a half out of their way. I'm like, no, no, I'll come get it. No, no, I'm driving. I'm driving down to the beach anyway. I'll come, I'll come hit you up. You know? And then there's also people that are like, 
the complete opposite end of the spectrum and want nothing right. to do with you and, and want, want, uh, want to just grow and expand as fast as they can without caring about who, who they're knocking over on the way. And that's sure. the way it is. That's the way it is in every industry. And in the restaurant industry, it's a little bit different because you're in your bubble. You know, my bubble was my restaurant. I was in my restaurant and everything outside my restaurant didn't really pertain to me, you know, but now with brewing, you know, there's a lot of aspects of it. You're bringing people into your tasting room. You're sending beer out of your tasting room. You're going to, you're, you know, you're going to beer contests and, and beer events. You're going to, to, to pour your beer at, at festivals and stuff like that. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of interaction with, with the rest of the, of the world there. And um, it's just a different beast, but it, it's, it's great. I wouldn't, I mean, I, I love the brewing industry and I love beer and, and there's some really, really awesome breweries out there that I support and love and buy beer from them for my home in my fridge. <laughs> so. All right. So to, to wrap this episode up, tell us about your expansion. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was pretty crazy. It happens. It's been happening pretty quickly and then it kind of slowed down because of COVID and then it's happening fast again. Um, we'd always, you know, my wife's from Miami and I'm from Long Island, New York, and we love California. We both have been out there, you know, long time, 15, 20 years. And we kind of really always wanted to have another facility on the East coast. So we, we always talk about like, our dream would be when Surfridge and we were originally talking about Surfridge, our dream would be, you know, distribute from San Diego up to Seattle along the coast and then distribute from, you know, Miami up into Maine along the coast. Like that would be awesome. That would be great. Just the two coasts distribute up and down the two coasts. And with, with kind of what we believe in, you know, our, you know, we believe in a lot of sustainability and the ocean and, and, and trying to clean up, all the plastic and everything that's in the world. And, and those things are just really good to, to be on the coast. And we love beaches and we love the ocean. So we were planning, you know, five, six years down the road, we, you know, we, we make some, we make surf rage what it is and then go look at some spaces in you know, the Carolinas or Florida or, you know, Washington or wherever we can find a good, good location. One of our friends and investors, happens to be from Connecticut and he had a, uh, him and his family own this really great property in Connecticut, right on the coast in the middle of the state, right in Essex, Connecticut, <clears throat> halfway between Boston and New York along the coast. And he was, they, they kind of had this 6,000 square foot space that they were trying to figure out what to do with. And they invited us, me and my wife out there to kind of just look at it as a consultant. Uh, hey, we're friends. Can you check out this space and like, see what we can do with it? We're, we really want to do a, you know, a brewery and a restaurant, kind of a brew pub. And we looked at the space and we're like, gave them our opinion. And the space is awesome. The location's amazing. Like you couldn't ask for anything else. There's, there's a train right there. There's built in, built in offices and creative offices. And they're all full and booked with people that are there. 300 people are there every day anyway. So it's just a really good old brick building. It used to be a, uh, it used to be, uh, it was called Witch Hazel Works. And it used to be, um, they used to make Witch Hazel and astringent rubbing alcohol there. So the building that we're in actually be, used to be called the Tank Farm. And it was just fermenting tanks to ferment all of this rubbing alcohol and Witch Hazel and stuff and astringents. And I was like, that's pretty cool. So they're trying to bring back the glory a little bit. And we gave, us, gave them our two cents. And they were like, well, you know, 
you've had the restaurant since 2009, you're, we're, we're investors in Surfridge. Why don't we do, you know, a Surfridge East? And uh, I said, well, you know, we haven't even opened Surfridge West yet when we were talking about them. Like we're still, we're still in construction. I'm still dealing with the, with the electric company here. Like, it seems a little bit premature. And they're like, well, give us, give us a list of how, what you would need to make this work. And me and my wife sat down and had a couple of beers and we're like, let's give, let's give them a list of, of how this would work. And, and they agreed to everything that we needed to make it work as quickly as it did. And um, then COVID hit, you know, then we opened the brewery and then COVID hit and <clears throat> me and my wife have a nine, he's nine now, but an eight year old son at the time. And LA, LA is, <clears throat> you know, pretty, uh, pretty tough during COVID. It was tough during COVID. I, I will say yep. the least, you know, you got, you got the fires, you got the riots, you got the protests, you got, <clears throat> you got COVID, you got everything being shut down. You got, you know, the government not really knowing what to do. And we were like, we need to reset our family. We need to take a break. We were going to, we were going to hire a whole staff for Connecticut and stay in LA and run LA, you know, run Connecticut from LA going back and forth with the staff that we have in Connecticut. But we said, you know what? The staff that we have in LA, we've had for years. I mean, we've known these guys for 10 years and, and we trust them, their family to us. Why don't we look at houses and look at stuff in Connecticut? The schools are more, it's a little bit, a little bit more chill out there. The schools are open for our son. Let's, <clears throat> let's look at that. And we started looking at it and we said, hey, it's, it's actually better for our family and for the company if we come out here really get Connecticut set up, get our kid back in school. We trust the people that are running LA. We're still, I'm still in contact with them through zoom and through text and calls every day anyway, um, where I think it would behoove us to do it that way instead of do it from LA and, and kind of just worked out in our best interest to do that. So then we moved in January and, and we're super happy out here. My son's back in school and we're setting up, the place out here, getting all the permits done and, and hiring, hiring all the people out here and we're kind of boots on the ground out here now. And uh, we're bringing the same culture that we have over there. And our culture is, you know, our tagline is extending our family one beer at a time. So that's kind of our culture and what we believe in. And our tap handles over there are made out of recycled beach cleanup plastic. Like we didn't want to go out and buy wooden or, or porcelain handles. So we found this company that does beach cleanups and then makes injection molds with the melted plastic from the beach cleanup. So we're going to do the same kind of culture out here. And it's going to be called Surfridge East. And, but this will have a restaurant. It'll have a wood burning brick oven pizza <coughs> component, and then an oyster, raw oyster bar, raw bar component as well. And, um, and then a smaller facility, uh, we'll do a 10 barrel system out here. Where in LA, we have a 20-barrel system with, you know, we have six 20-barrel fermenters. We have kind of a larger system there. Here, it'll be a 10-barrel system with um, eight 10-barrel fermenters. So we'll be able to do some more smaller, small batch, <clears throat> seasonal, you know, regional stuff out here. And we'll still have, you know, 10 or 12 of our beers that sell really well that are, you know, our Kolsch, our Belgian white ale, our pale ale, our West Coast IPA, all those things that our kind of family favorites on the West coast will brew on the East coast as well, but then we can do some other fun stuff and, and supply the restaurant with other, other fun beers out here. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's probably it. That sounds like a, a really exciting project moving moving across the country. Where can we learn more about Surfridge? Um, so our, our social media handles are Surfridge Beer. And um, if it's like surfing on the ridge of a mountain. Um, so sometimes people are, have, are like, how does it spell? And I'm like, just surf on the ridge of a mountain. So Surfridge, um, it's actually named after an old town that was the nickname of an old town between Marina Del Rey, Playa Del Rey, and 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 El Segundo there's mm-hmm. a coastal town that used to be called Surfridge as the nickname and it's not there anymore because the airport came in and took that land over but it was a really cool kind of surf spot where people would watch all the surfers surf at Dockweiler Beach um, and that's where the name and the nickname comes from and we really like the name so Surfridge Beer is our uh, you know Twitter and Instagram and then our website is surfridgebrewery.com so yeah, you can check us check us out, and then uh, you know our our tap rooms open a lot, and we just want people to come and enjoy the sun, enjoy some beers. Nice. Hey, man, well, I appreciate you joining us today on the True Craft Podcast. Your history is really exciting. I love how you took the time at each restaurant location to really focus in on changing the the culture of the beer menu. And you took that to your own spot and now you're taking it one more step in the supply chain and making the product. So kudos to you. I love the story. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great being here, Adam and Chris. I really appreciate anything to, uh, anything to talk beer. I'll talk beer all day. (laughs) Nice. Take care. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of true craft podcast. Links to cool information about our guests and other fun facts can be found in the show notes. The show is produced by Josh Barnhart and sponsored by Small Batch Standard. Small Batch Standard is the premier financial agency built to serve the craft brewing industry. We help craft breweries grow profits through outsourced accounting, tax compliance, and growth consulting. Visit SB Standard today to learn more and request a discovery call with the team. Peace out.